I want you to go back with me in time this morning. And I want you to use a little bit of your sanctified imagination. And I want you to see a man by the name of Naaman, a commander in the armies of Ben-Hadad II, the king of Syria. And I want you to see this military man. I want you to see him one morning as he's dressing in his finest to present himself to the king's court. And as Naaman stretches out his muscular, well-braceleted arm, his eye fell on something that was on his arm. It was something there that Naaman had never seen before. And he looked at it carefully. And he studied it. And as he looked at it, Naaman's bronzed, well-tanned face turned completely pale and white. But Naaman was a soldier. And he threw his robes around him and he went to the court. And at the king's court, Naaman the soldier performed his duties with Ben-Hadad. Some weeks later, he looked again at his arm. And the spot on his arm had grown larger. Another week or two passed and there's a spot on his other arm. And then on his thigh. And there's no doubt now. Naaman was a leper. Naaman had fallen victim to mankind's oldest, most dreaded, most exclusively human and dreaded disease. Naaman was a great man. He was the number two man in the kingdom. But he was a leper. He was wealthy. He was famous as the leader of the armies of Syria and as the deliverer of his nation. The king honored Naaman. And whenever Naaman appeared in public, the people hailed him and the people saluted him. And yet, though Naaman occupied such a high place in the kingdom, Naaman would have been thrilled. He would have been happy to exchange places with any healthy soldier of any rank in the army who didn't have leprosy. But Naaman was more fortunate than most. On one of the Syrian raids into Israel, a young maiden had been captured by the victorious Syrian army. And she was carried off to Damascus. And she was sold to Naaman. And Naaman gave this young maiden to his wife as a house slave. This young Jewish girl knew something of the true God. She knew something of God's great prophet Elisha. And she had learned of the sickness of her master, Naaman. And one day this young girl with her mistress said, I would to God, my Lord were with the prophet that's in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. Well, 
the saying of this little slave girl was reported to Naaman. And Naaman knew all too well that he was a leper. And he also knew that he had consulted all of the physicians of Syria. He had tried all the cures they had to offer. And with all the things he had done, he was not better. He was actually worse. No doubt Naaman also had heard of God's man, Elisha. The famous prophet in Israel. And perhaps Naaman thought to himself, he can cure me of my leprosy. With that in mind, he went to Ben-Hadad and told him what the young slave girl had said. And so the king heard of that. And the king told Naaman he would write to Jehoram, the king of Israel, a letter of introduction. And so it was. By the earnest word of a captive slave girl, Naaman was put in touch with the prophet of Israel. Armed with a letter from the king of Syria to the king of Israel. And taking with him $50,000 in gold and silver and changes of costly raiment. Naaman and his party started on the journey southward toward Samaria. Naaman's chariot drove through Samaria and pulled up to the humble house of the prophet. I want you to picture that scene. I want you to picture this humble abode of the prophet of God. And I want you to picture the finery of Naaman's chariot. Decorated with its silver and its gold and its beautiful Arabian horses. And the bright uniforms of his staff and his own costly apparel. And all of that's in stark contrast to this humble little home where the prophet of God lives. So they stopped the chariot. And Naaman sent one of his servants in to tell Elisha what it was that he wanted. And after a time, there came out of the prophet's house, not the prophet himself, but his servant Gehazi. That came as a great shock to a man like Naaman. Because after all, he is the second in command. He's the number two man in the Syrian empire. Naaman's accustomed to sending servants to other men. He's not accustomed to other men sending servants to him. They came in person to Naaman. But as you read the story in 2 Kings chapter 5, if Naaman was offended because Elisha didn't come in person, the message from Elisha is going to offend him even more. Because Elisha's message through Gehazi was, go and dip seven times in the river Jordan and you'll be clean. And that answer made Naaman mad. I thought he would have come and maybe put his hand over the spot and healed it immediately. But no, he tells me to go wash in the dirty, filthy, mucky, muddy Jordan River. Why couldn't I go back to Damascus? We've got clean rivers like Abana and Farfar there. No, I've got to dip in the muddy Jordan. He turned his chariots around and he headed back toward Damascus. Fortunately, as we would say, 
There were those there who were not afraid to speak truth to power. Naaman had some wise soldiers and some wise servants with him. And they were not afraid to speak to their Lord on his own behalf. And one of them spoke to Naaman. Fortunately, by now, they've traveled a distance and Naaman's anger has subsided a bit. His rage is not quite what it was at first. Because he remembered, after all, he's still a leper. And the servant spoke to Naaman. And he said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, thou wouldst have done it. He went on and he said, Why not then wash and be clean? And almost as abruptly as he had turned from Elisha's house to head toward Damascus, Naaman turned the horses around again in the direction of the Jordan River. When he came to the Jordan, he stopped the chariots and Naaman got out. He took off his costly raiment. And I want you to by an eye of faith see Naaman as he steps down into the dark, muddy waters of the Jordan River and dipped himself seven times. He did just what God had told him to do. You know what happened after he dipped the first time? He still had leprosy. And the second, and the third, the fourth, the fifth, and even after he dipped the sixth time, he still had leprosy. But the seventh time he dipped himself in those muddy waters, he came up clean. The leprosy was gone. And his flesh had come again on his body like the flesh of a little child. Naaman. Naaman had questioned the validity of dipping in the Jordan River. He thought within himself, as we said, there were better rivers in Damascus. But the prophet of God had specified the Jordan River. One of the key things in this story that we often overlook is where the servant who spoke truth to power said to Naaman, My Lord, if he had bid you do some great thing, you would have done it. Naaman wasn't told to do anything great. He was told to do just a little thing. Go dip seven times in the Jordan River. You see, my friends, little things are important. And sometimes in life, we lose sight of the little things. There was a popular song out of the 1950s entitled, Little Things Mean a Lot. Could I see a show of hands of those who'd like to hear me sing it? That's what I was afraid of. Well, here are the lyrics to it. Blow me a kiss from across the room. Say I look nice when I'm not. Touch my hair as you pass my chair. Little things mean a lot. Give me your arm as we cross the street. Call me at six on the dot. 
A line a day when you're far away. Little things mean a lot. Don't have to buy me diamonds and pearls, champagne, sables and such. I never cared much for diamonds and pearls, but honestly, honey, they just cost money. Give me your hand when I've lost the way. Give me your shoulder to cry on. Whether the day is bright or gray, give me your heart to rely on. Send me the warmth of a secret smile to show me you haven't forgot. Now and forever and always and ever. Little things mean a lot. Just like the words to that song. The little things mean a lot. And that's something we lose sight of far too often. Like Naaman. We want to be able to do some great thing. Like Naaman, we want to be able to do something that's grandiose. We want to be able to do something that's big. But you know something? Sometimes just a little kindness is all some folks need. Just a kind word. A kind gesture. Sometimes that's all it takes to lift someone's spirits and send them on their way with a song in their heart. To be sure, there are no little kindnesses. Simple kindnesses, hospitality, brotherly love can sometimes make all the difference in the world in someone else's life. We can give to others compassion in times of trouble and trial and heartache. Something that might seem so little to us to give it, but to the recipient can often seem so big. It's like the service to God. When dedicated to God, when dedicated to the service of God, there are no little talents. I like to think about the way Jesus pictures the judgment scene in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus tells us that in that judgment day, He's going to divide folks like a shepherd divides sheep from the goats. And to those on the right hand, the Lord is going to tell them to inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. And they're going to ask Him, Lord, what have we done? What great deeds have we performed to deserve this? And He's going to say, I was hungry. And you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you put clothes on my back. I was sick and you came to see me. All those are little things. They're little kindnesses. But Jesus says they're important. Friends, we don't all have the same talent.
Everybody can't teach a class. Everybody can't preach a sermon. Everybody can't lead the singing. But there are little things that all of us can do in the service of the Lord. We can invite others to come and join us for worship. We can even bring them. When I think of bringing others to worship, there's a scene that I've shared with you before. Some of you may remember hearing it. Some of you have never heard it. But it's indelibly etched in the recesses of my mind and has been for over 60 years. When I was a young boy, and yes, I can remember that far back, there was a dear Christian lady and worshipped with us at Appleby where Daddy was preaching. Her name was Vioni Robertson. And she and her husband George did not have much of this world's goods. This would have been about 1962, 1963, and they had about a 45-model Chevrolet pickup truck that was their primary means of transportation, and there were fenders held on with bailing wire. And I will never forget watching them as they would bring people to church. And Vioni would be sitting on a bench in the back of that pickup truck. And she was not a young woman at the time. Now at the time, I thought she was had one foot in the grave and another on banana peel. I think she was probably about 50. But that's still not a young woman to be riding on a bench in the back of a pickup truck. But the scene I'll never forget, they would always load up as many people as they could. And there was one night that it was almost time for evening services to start it was in January there was a mist falling it was misting rain temperature was hovering in the high 30's it was cold and miserable and as a small boy I was standing there on the front porch of the church building with some other people and here comes that pickup truck turning in and sitting in the cab of that truck is George Robertson and a man and his wife that they're bringing to church and sitting in the back of that truck on a bench is Vioni Robertson with two little children one on either side of them over the children of the couple that were in the cab of the truck with her big black wool coat stretched out just like a mother hen would stretch her wings out as she covered those two children to protect them from a misting rain. Vioni never taught a Bible class. She didn't teach a ladies class. George was not even a member of the church. But what Vioni did, she brought people to church. It was a little thing. 
But time and eternity will only know how many people came to know Jesus Christ because of her example and because of her influence. It's a little thing. We can call others and encourage others unable to come to worship. Those who might be sick, those who might be homebound. And we can pray. We can pray for the church. What did James say about prayer in James 5.16? He said the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Think about the importance of little things in the life of Jesus. You can read in Luke 21 about Jesus sitting over against the treasury and watching as the people put into the treasury there. And He talked about those putting in out of their abundance. But there was a poor widow that came. And she cast in two mites. A very insignificant amount of money. It was a little thing, a very little thing. But what did Jesus say? It said she has cast in more than all of the others. He said they have cast in out of their abundance. She has cast in everything she had, even to all of her living. Or what about the feast in Bethany? It was at the home of a man named Simon, and he was like Naaman. He was a leper. And there at the feast at the home of Simon, a woman came with an alabaster box. That would be an expensive container. And that expensive container was filled with expensive ointment. And she opened that alabaster box and she poured that ointment on Jesus and she anointed Him with it. And the disciples were quite indignant because they said, look at the waste of money that was done here, Jesus said. Leave her alone. She's come to anoint my body for burial. He said, wherever this gospel's preached, people are going to talk about what this woman did. You know what else he said? She hath done what she could. Little things. Can that be said of us? That we're doing what we could. Jesus said wherever the gospel was preached, that would be spoken of as a memorial to that woman. You see folks, little things are important to God. Little things like obedience are important. You remember back in the early morning of time, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God said, here's this beautiful garden. You can eat the fruit of any tree in this garden that you want to, except one. The fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You can't have that. The day you eat that, you're going to die, God said. Well, the serpent came and tempted Eve, and she saw the fruit was pleasing to the eye, and she saw it was good for food, and it was a tree to be desired to make one wise, and so she ate it. And she gave it to Adam, and he ate it too. Now, doesn't that seem like a little thing? All they did was eat one piece of fruit. But God said, don't do it. 
Little things are important to God. Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. It said, Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire to God, which He commanded them not. Seems like a little thing, doesn't it? But fire came down from heaven and burned them to a crisp. Or what about Moses in Numbers chapter 20? They were in the wilderness of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. And God told Moses, you speak to this rock and it'll bring forth water. But Moses said, must I fetch water from this rock for you rebels? And he hit the rock with his staff. It's a little thing, wasn't it? God said, speak to the rock. Moses smote the rock. He hit the rock. It's not a big deal. God thought it was. Because that's what kept Moses from entering the promised land with the children of Israel. Saul was sent down in 1 Samuel 15 to utterly destroy the Amalekites. But he spared Agag the king and the best of the sheep and the oxen. And what did God's man Samuel say? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to hearken in the fat of rams. All these things were little things. But it was something God said don't do. Little things mean a lot. A little thing like obedience to God's will means a lot. Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name? And in thy name we cast out devils. And in thy name we did many wonderful works. And then will I say unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Then he goes on. Jesus said, Everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them shall be likened unto a wise man that built his house upon a rock. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon the house, and it fell not. For it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not. Shall be likened unto a foolish man that built his house upon the sand. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew. They beat upon that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. In Luke chapter 6. Jesus plaintively asks the question, Why do you call me Lord and refuse to do the things I tell you to do? It's His invitation as we stand and while we sing.